Well, good morning. Good to see everybody. Title of the message is The Miracle of Divine Forgiveness. And if you're not there, Pastor Jeff earlier read the scripture. You can follow along. I'll just be in this one passage, Matthew 9. Uh, verses 1 to 8. I'm reading now the New American Standard, 1995 edition, so it might read a little differently than what you have. The Bible's a, a book full of miracles, both Old Testament and New Testament. In fact, the Bible itself is a miraculous book when you think about it. It's, it was written by 40 men over 1,500 years. That's a long, long time. Men who, very few of them knew each other. Men who had a variety of occupations. God God raised up men like Joshua, who was a warrior general. Uh, Solomon was born with not a silver spoon, but a golden spoon in his mouth. He was a king. Amos was someone who raised sheep. Matthew was a tax collector. That's a real popular uh, occupation this time of year. Luke was a physician. Peter a fisherman. Yet all these men came together to, uh, by, by God's direction, to write this one book, and it has one unified theme. You know, there are 66 books, there's 39 Old Testament, 27 New, and yet it's one book. There's, there's one thread of, there's one unified theme throughout the whole book. And you, if you had 40 men today that you asked to put together their thoughts on theology, you would not produce the Bible. And so what you have in your hands, either paper version or digital, is in fact a miraculous book. But within the book, there are miracles. Um, Old Testament, the miracles are primarily associated with Israel. When Israel was born as a nation, God raised up a man like Moses who performed miracles. You might recall the the judgment miracles on Egypt, those ten uh, judgment miracles such as turning the Nile River into blood. Later on, Joshua was used by God as Joshua's leading the charge, taking the land of Canaan, destroying the enemies of God, and he needed more time. They didn't have night vision goggles back then, and he needed more time, more daylight to destroy the enemies. And God actually made the sun stand still so that he could accomplish what he needed to do. And then all of a sudden, miracles, for the most part, stopped. There was a few here and there. And then about six centuries later, when Israel was involved in apostasy, they were worshiping the gods of Baal, God raised up men, men like Elijah, He was used by God to perform miracles. You might remember the miracle where he uh, had a contest with the 850 prophets of Baal. That's one of my favorites. Raising the widow's son from the dead was another miracle that Elijah did. And then his successor, Elisha, with an S, he did twice the miracles that Elijah had done. He, for instance, made the iron axe head float to the surface when one of the Students, one of his students lost that axe head into the water. And then all of a sudden we have silence for about three centuries as far as miracles are concerned. And then during Israel's captivity, their Babylonian captivity, 
Daniel and his three friends were the recipients of miracles. Daniel's three friends, for instance, were protected in the fiery furnace when they failed to bow to the statue that had been erected. Daniel himself, as an old man, was protected in the lion's den because he wouldn't compromise on his prayer life. And then for about 500 years, there was silence concerning miracles. And then the New Age begin, or the New Testament begins. Jesus is born, and later on he begins his ministry, and he performed his first miracle, not before this, but his first miracle is recorded for us in John 2 at the wedding at Cana. Now, from what some commentators say, Jesus performed more miracles than anyone. He performed upwards of 40 miracles, and that's just what is recorded for us. Miracles were always done with a purpose in mind. They weren't done willy-nilly, as though, you know, I had a miracle happen to me. No, they were always done with a purpose in mind. And so we're going to see that today very clearly as we look at this miracle of Jesus healing the blind man in Matthew 9. And I trust you're all there. The importance of this miracle is highlighted by the fact that it's recorded in the other synoptic gospels. And so we have... Mark's uh, point of view on this miracle, and Luke's as well. It's recorded in Mark 2 and Luke 5. So we have three points of view of this one miracle. That allows us to understand the miracle even better. And I'll make reference to some of those other passages. So as we go from Matthew chapter 8 into chapter 9, this is the last uh, of a group of three miracles that Jesus has just performed Earlier, he had stilled the sea, which indicates his power over nature. Later, he cast out demons, indicating his power over the demonic world. Now, he will demonstrate his ability to forgive sin. And look at verse 1. It says, getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. Now, Capernaum was his home city. And he went there from time to time to get away from the crowds. Nazareth had been his home city until the opposition forced him to leave. Now, in in our time that remains, I see six things in this miracle that show it to be redemptive and revelatory. And these six things, if you like to take notes, it's an alliterative approach. They all begin with the letter F. And so the first one, the first of six, is faith. That's the first part of verse 2. And they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed, seeing their faith. Mark 2 gives more information, and I want to read the first four verses there. It says, when he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallets on which the paralytic was lying. And so at home, probably this is Peter's house. They came to this crowded house where Jesus, it says in Mark 2, was speaking the word to them. We don't know what he was speaking about. Luke 5 says he was teaching. It says in Mark 
there was no longer room, not even near the door. Now, now think about that. Back then, there were uh, no fire codes that I know of. There was no air conditioning. You know, I'm old enough to remember when there wasn't air conditioning. And so it would have been kind of unbearable as they're packed in there to hear Jesus speak. So these four men had a problem. They wanted to get their friend to Jesus. Now remember, we're looking at faith in this first one here. His four friends manifested creative faith. One of them must have said, hey, I, I got an idea. Let's go up to the roof. Now, I don't know what prompted him to think that way, but, but he did. And so our, our attention now is drawn to the roof of the house. Now, a little bit about houses back then. They were one story. The roofs were flats. Wood beams were laid between the walls about three feet apart. Stone slabs or plates of burnt clay were then laid across the beams. And then a a coat of clay was spread on top of these slabs and rolled hard to keep out the rain. People back then would use their roofs to cool off when it was an opportune time and to relax Houses would typically have an outside stairway to get to the roof. And so these men went up to the roof and they tore just enough of the roof to lower their friend to Jesus. Now now think with me on this. They had to figure out the part of the roof that would allow them to lower their friend to be just in front of Jesus. Just picture here if this roof were being torn off. They, They had to calculate where that might be to drop their friends. I wonder what Peter, the hothead, if this was in fact his house, what he thought of his roof being torn up. He must have said something. We don't, we're not told, but so get the picture. Jesus is teaching. Noise begins to emanate from the roof. Particles of the roof begin to fall in people's hair, and Jesus is interrupted. And lo and behold, a man on a stretcher appears in front of Jesus. I'm guessing they, they probably used Peter's fishing tackle to lower the man, Peter being a fisherman, that's just my guess. So Jesus is interrupted as he's teaching. And you know, it's interesting to me, again, we're learning about Jesus. Jesus never criticized these men for tearing up Peter's roof. Jesus didn't say, come back to the next service or something like that. What great friends. We see that these four men are stretcher bearers for Jesus. They're evangelists. They're willing to get their friend to Jesus no matter what the obstacle. These four friends had faith that Jesus could heal their friends. Now, again, seeing their faith, Jesus is looking at those four men, but there's also the faith of the paralytic. Don't discount him as not having any faith. We're going to explore that in a minute. He wanted to be taken to Jesus, but he's unable to unless someone took him. We're not sure why the man was paralyzed. Some commentators have suggested he committed some sort of criminal acts. Maybe he was robbing a a business or house and he fell and broke his his back or something. Uh, The text doesn't tell us, and that's just speculation on my part. Apparently it was severe, maybe from the neck down. He He seemingly could not even speak. We don't hear any record of him speaking here. It was so severe, he had to be carried on a stretcher by four men, so it's pretty bad. 
But it seems in his paralyzed state, he became sensitive to his sin and wanted forgiveness. Now, back in that day, there was a common misconception that, that uh, there was an automatic connection between, or a direct connection, rather, between sin and sickness. For instance, in John 9, uh, the uh, disciples see a man on the road, and he's been born blind from birth, and they say, Rabbi, who sins? This man or his parents said he should be born blind. You might remember what Jesus said. He said, neither this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so maybe this was what was running through this man's mind. Maybe he had committed a a specific sin that resulted in his paralysis. We don't know. But we do know God brings sickness and poor health into all of our lives for a variety of reasons. The Jewish leaders taught If you were sick, there are reasons for it. If you were healthy, it was because you were in good standing with God. And that's a a works righteousness mentality that we should be careful to avoid. Life for a paralyzed person back then would have been very difficult. There was no motorized wheelchairs back then. He would have had to depend on the generosity of others for all of his basic needs. So we have faith, and now we come to forgiveness. That's the second part of verse 2 says, Jesus said to the paralytic, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus speaks tenderly to the man, take courage, son. Now this suggests the man was eaten up by his sins when he says that. The ESV actually, I think, does a better job than the New American Standard. It says, take heart, my son. And don't miss that That pronoun there, that possessive personal pronoun, my son. Jesus is connecting with this man. Take courage, take heart, my son. The Greek word there is tharseo. It means you don't have anything to be afraid of any longer. I'm here. Whatever your problems are, I'm here to deal with it. Take courage, son. You know, Psalm 51.17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Psalm 34.18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Now, it's important to realize the paralytic was not forgiven because of the faith of, of his four friends. As a personal example, I'm not forgiven of my sins because because of the faith of my late mother. We all interact with God as individuals. Now, her, her involvement in my salvation was seeing to it that I got to church to hear the word, as these four friends did with this paralytic. But all of us interact with God as individuals. No, the faith of these four friends brought their friends, their paralyzed friend, to Jesus because they knew he could heal him. But notice, Jesus is speaking to the paralyzed man, no one else. He's not saying to those four guys, your sins are forgiven. He's talking to that paralyzed man. Take courage, son. And so the condition of this man's heart was fertile soil for the forgiveness of his sins. Jesus will perform two miracles on this one man. 
I don't know of anyone else who had two miracles performed on them. Down south, we might, you might say that was a twofer, a two-for-one. Um, Jesus will perform the most important miracle first, which is forgiving the man's sin. You might be tempted to think the greater of the two miracles was healing the man's paralysis. But the greatest need of all of us is not our physical condition, but our spiritual. Now we come to fury, the third point. It says in verse 3, And some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. When Jesus, what Jesus said infuriated these religious leaders. This is the first mention in Matthew of the scribes in contact with Christ, and there is immediate conflict. I mean, the Lord just almost hits them in the face with this, metaphorically, with this statement. Your sins are forgiven. That's a shock to them, what Jesus is saying. Now, there were lots of Pharisees there. Luke 5.17 says, there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there, so they're sitting, everyone else is standing, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. So they had the big guns there from the headquarters, from Jerusalem. So there's lots of religious leaders there sitting in judgment on Jesus' teaching. They were there to judge what Jesus was saying, not to be preached to. That's why they're there. They said to themselves. Jesus knew the thoughts of these religious leaders, and in so doing, he demonstrated his deity. Omniscience... That's the attribute that God knows all things is an attribute of deity. These religious leaders knew Jesus had read their minds. They say in verse 4, Jesus knowing their thoughts. Unlike the paralytic, these religious leaders saw no need to have their sins forgiven since they followed the Mosaic law to the letter. Now, the Mosaic Law is more than just the Ten Commandments. There's, I think, some 613 commandments, a civil, ceremonial, not just moral. And they had expanded that to the point where it was just out of control, all these laws and stuff. And they resented Jesus offering forgiveness. To them, forgiveness must be earned. The two great barriers to, to salvation both then and today is, number one, a refusal to recognize the need for forgiveness. And number two, the belief that salvation can be earned. These leaders remained hard-hearted even after Jesus healed the man. And that goes to show you that witnessing a miracle never changed anyone's heart. The fury of these men would culminate in the trial of Jesus in which Caiaphas, the high priest, asked Jesus and Matthew 26, are you the Christ, the Son of God? To which Jesus replied, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And so we've had faith, forgiveness, fury, and now we come to final exam. Final exam, verses 4 and 5 says, and Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? Now, all of us have taken final exams while in school. 
It may, may be a pleasant memory, may not be. I have mixed memories of, of final exams depending on how hard I studied. Uh, that was done to test our head knowledge. But here we see a final exam of the heart. These leaders were thinking evil in their hearts by accusing Jesus of blasphemy. These leaders were correct on one hand, only God can forgive sins. So, so far they're doing okay on their final exam. But these leaders were incorrect on the other hand, not realizing Jesus is God. That was their problem. They saw Jesus as a mere man and nothing more. They thought at best Jesus was a man who had some sort of special connection with God. And you know, it's no different today. We have cult groups, the Mormons, the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses who deny the deity of Christ, the Unitarian Church. Uh, some of your mainline Protestant churches have a very weak understanding of the deity of Christ. And so we see here, Jesus says, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk. And now Jesus might have emphasized this word, say. We're not, we weren't there, but it's quite possible he emphasized that word. You know, any religious leader could say to someone, your sins are forgiven. And there are charlatans on TV that do that today. But to say, get up and walk to a paralytic demands a follow-up action. If, if a young, skinny high school kid walks into a, a weight room and, and brags and says, I can bench press 200 pounds, and there's a bunch of big, hulk, hulky football players standing nearby, he, he better back up his mouth with action. And so this one statement of Jesus demanded action. And that's, he's provoking these guys. This is his first encounter with the Pharisees. And Jesus will, will prove his deity by healing the man. Jesus will trap these guys in their, their own logic, and they failed the final exam. They understood the ability to forgive sins resided only with God. They had some understanding of the connection between sin and sickness. They had the book of Genesis chapter 3, which talks about Adam's fallen race and how all that came about. But they failed to understand that Jesus was the source of sin's forgiveness. Now, I have a question since we're dealing with final exams, and hopefully everyone will pass. Which is easier for God to do, forgive sins or heal a paralyzed man? You don't have to answer out loud, but the answer is healing a paralyzed man is much easier for God to do than to forgive sins. I mean, think of it. God's the creator of the universe. He understands the architecture of the nervous system since he created it, he knows exactly how it functions. He spoke the creation into existence out of nothing. The Latin word there is ex nihilo. So healing a, a paralyzed man after creating the universe and all the stars, that's nothing for God to do. To forgive sins is an entirely different matter. What's involved in God forgiving sins? Well, the second person of the Godhead, that's God the Son, agreed to leave heaven and be born as a genuine member of the human race. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. 
So Jesus Christ agreed to leave heaven, the riches of heaven, come to planet earth to become poor. That has to do with the incarnation, the word made flesh. He's fully God, fully man, one person. Why did he become poor? So that you through his poverty might become rich. That's the grace of God. That's how it began, his, his agreement to leave heaven and become incarnate. It began with his virgin conception. He lived a sinless life. At the age of 30, he began his three-year ministry. He demonstrated that he was what the Old Testament scriptures pointed to. He performed miracles that the Old Testament said Messiah would do. Jesus preached that only through him were sins forgiven and eternal life granted. Jesus preached himself. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one was confused about Jesus concerning the claims he made. His death on a cross is the only means any descendant of Adam can be forgiven their sins, including this paralyzed man. The death of Christ was an acceptable sacrifice to God. Isaiah 53 says in verse 5, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Isaiah 53 goes on to say in verses 10 and 11, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Jesus would bear the sins of this man and all who place their faith in Jesus Christ at the cross. So getting back to my original question, forgiving this man's sins was much more difficult than healing his paralysis. It might seem that Jesus is casually forgiving the man's sins. God simply cannot dismiss someone's sin as though it's no big deal. You know, we say that all the time when we, whatever, you know, you say, oh, no problem, no big deal. But in dealing with sin with a God, we need to realize he is, holy and and righteous. Psalm 24 says, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? Answer, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. Isaiah understood the holiness of God in Isaiah 6 verse 1. Isaiah says there, I saw the Lord. He's taken up in a vision where he beholds the Lord. And in verse 3, he sees the, uh, hears the seraphim, which are special angels guarding God's holiness. He hears them say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And then in verse 5, Isaiah, who's having this vision of God's holiness, says this, then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, And I live among a people of unclean lips. Why does he say that? He goes on to say, For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. God is righteous and just. The very concept of justice is embedded in the character of God. 
You know, we read the news and, and hear about things in the world, and all of us despise judges who let criminals off lightly. We, we hear this about no cash bail for violent criminals, and that, that's just a horrible injustice that's taking place. But God, in contrast, is absolutely free from all unrighteousness. Scripture tells us that. I, uh, Psalm 92, uh, 15, the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Now, I want to read a couple verses out of Romans 3 because they better help us understand this miracle here. Now, I want to say three things about these two verses. Romans 3.21 says, Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. I just stop right there. We see that the righteousness of God is apart from the law. That was the Pharisees, the religious leaders' mistake. They thought they could earn the righteousness of God. But it's apart from the law. It's witnessed by the law in what I just read. But the righteousness of God, it says, what I just read, is through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. And then verse 25 of Romans 3, the second half, says this. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time. And what, what that is saying there is up to this point in time, all the Old Testament saints had their sins forgiven on credit. God would die at a point in time. We know Abraham was righteous. He died 2,000 years before the cross. His sins were forgiven on credit. Other Old Testament saints, Joseph, Moses, David, Daniel, had their sins forgiven on credit. The sins of believers, past, present, and future, all who would believe, were laid upon Jesus at the cross. And today, you and I look back on that, but back in the Old Testament, they looked forward to salvation. And then one more point in this, uh, Romans 3.25 for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he may be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Just and the justifier. The cross proved God is both just and the justifier. Don't miss that. That's really important to understand about what happened at the cross of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so the miracle of divine forgiveness, that's the title of this message, is that God is a just judge. He's not a bad judge. He's just. We've seen those verses. He's able to forgive sins through his son's death. You see, the, if you look at the cross from God's point of view, you might say to yourself, well, how can a holy God bear the sins of the world and maintain his holiness through the cross? God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The miracle of divine forgiveness. One perfect sacrifice. He died once. Now we come to point number five, and these last two points go quickly. 
force. Number five is force. It says in verses six and seven, so that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. Guess what happened? He got up and went home. Now, Jesus uses, speaks of himself in the third person here. He says, son of man. That was Jesus' favorite term for himself. The term Messiah had by the time of Jesus come to mean someone who would deliver Israel from Roman bondage and little else. And so Jesus will use a term that comes out of the Old Testament book of Daniel and has messianic expectations. It comes out of Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. He goes on to say, so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth. Authority on earth. Jesus had God's authority by means of the cross to forgive sins. What we see here is the Trinity is in view here. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. At Jesus' baptism, it was the Father who said, this is my beloved Son. At the transfiguration, Matthew 17, Peter, James, and John were there. They heard the voice, this is my beloved Son, listen to him. And so Jesus is not some sort of lone ranger doing his own thing. He has God's authority by means of the cross to forgive sins. Now notice the force of Jesus' healing. It's evident, isn't it? It meant the man was perfectly healed. The man had never been in better health. He was instantly healed. About a year ago, I uh, had a, something happen to my face. It, it, I woke up Saturday morning and and the left side of my face wasn't moving. And so I went to, I thought I was having a stroke. I went to urgent care, and they took me back right away, and they, they thought I was uh, having a stroke as well. But they ruled that out and said I had Bell's palsy. It was last Easter, actually. And um, they said, ah, you know, it normally hits younger people. Normally someone my age doesn't get it, but it's no big deal. You have to use uh, prednisone, uh, anti-inflammatory, and antibiotic, I think, and, and just rest, just lots of rest. And so that's what happens. But that took weeks, you know, three or four weeks or so for it to, to heal up. Jesus did not say to this man, I want you to take it easy for the next week or so. I'll, I'll write you a script. Take one tablet every six hours. Just, just take it easy. No. No, this is a divine healing. And so we see the man gets up fully energized. He picks up his bed and went home. What had carried him in, he carries out. And guess what? That crowd had to get out of the way so he could get out of that house. Uh, I would love to have been there to see that. And so we've seen faith, forgiveness, fury, final exam, force, and we come to the last one, and that's fear. Verse 8 says, But when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to men reverential fear, phobio, awestruck. That's where we get the word phobia. And it kind of has a negative meaning today, but this has a positive meaning. They were in the presence, one commentator says, of somebody who was infinitely superior to them. Now, you may get caught up in celebrity worship. You know, you may have met someone famous, a sports figure, Hollywood celebrity, but you have never met anyone who was infinitely superior to you. 
these people were in the presence of somebody who was infinitely superior to them, fully God and fully man, and they were awestruck over it. It's used of the guards at the garden tomb in Matthew 28 when the angels rolled the stone away of the women also in that chapter after they visited and saw that the tomb was empty. It says they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Now notice the crowds glorified God, but they did not acknowledge Jesus as God who has given such authority to men. They saw him as someone who was just gifted by God to do these things. The New Testament never speaks of the crowds that heard Jesus in a positive light. Be careful of the crowds, getting caught up in crowds. They saw him as an amazing man, but not as the God-man. And you and I need to realize who Jesus Christ is. In fact, the gospel itself, you know, it's not a form of music, it's a person. The gospel is Jesus Christ. Paul believed that. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 4, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance. This is a primary doctrine with Paul. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried. Pastor Kirk preached on that last week. The burial is part of the gospel. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Christianity is a religion grounded in forgiveness. No other religion can claim to be a religion of forgiveness And the ground of all forgiveness is the death of Christ. Maybe the most important theological verse in the New Testament anyway is 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, He made him who knew no sin. The Father made the Son who knew no sin. He's, He's sinless to be sin. He never became a sinner. He's credited, sin is legally laid on him to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This verse teaches substitutionary atonement. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so as we close, who do you most closely identify with? This is the final exam question. Get it right. A, the common people that heard Jesus, well, they were very fickle. They, they acknowledged Jesus gladly as someone unique, but nothing more. You know, today is Palm Sunday. That first Palm Sunday, remember what the crowd shouted in John 12, I think? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that same crowd a few days later, Good Friday, shouted, crucify him. So the crowd is very fickle. How about the religious leaders? Oh, I hope you don't pick this one. They had head knowledge, but not heart knowledge. And by the way, after the ascension, there were many of the religious establishment, Acts 6 talks about, that came to faith in Jesus Christ. After all, Paul would have been one of these enemies at this time, the Apostle Paul. 
So God can save anyone. But they had to be they had to see that Jesus Christ was in fact God. So these religious leaders had head knowledge but no heart knowledge. They saw the miracle Jesus performed but were unconvinced. Hell is the common de- destination for all who reject Jesus Christ. How about the four friends of the paralyzed man? Well, they brought their friend to Jesus. They were evangelists. We, we can't fault them, uh, fault them for that. By the way, who brought Peter to Jesus? Just an extra credit question here. Uh, Andrew did. Andrew was the apostle of the disciples. He was, or he was the evangelist, rather, of the uh, disciples. Who brought Dwight L. Moody to the Lord? He was the great evangelist of the second half of the 1800s. His Sunday school teacher did. A guy named Edward Kimball. And then the final choice and the correct choice is the paralyzed man. That's who we should most closely identify with. He was the only one who had his sins forgiven. Jesus said, take courage, son. I think the paralyzed man would have been perfectly content to have his sins forgiven and nothing more, but the Lord was gracious to this man. I believe the major issue in this man's life was his brokenness over his sin, not his paralysis. He was broken over sin, but he was in the presence of Jesus, and that's a good recipe for salvation. And the same with us. We must grieve over our sin. We must see the sinfulness of sin and our utter helplessness in order to be a candidate for the gospel. We must comprehend the bad news before the good news is really good news to us. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father. I, I have really enjoyed preparing this message. Uh, I'm reminded of Psalm 119. It says, the unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. And I thank you that I've been able to read commentaries by different people and, and sort through things and, and how uh, you have shed light in my heart over this matter. And I pray that these here have further understanding of your great salvation. Lord, your salvation truly is great. It's threefold. It's we're justified. We're declared righteous when we believe in Jesus Christ. We're freed from the penalty of sin. But it doesn't just end there. It's also sanctification, the, the power over sin. And as we are controlled by the Holy Spirit, we have victory over sin. There's victory in Jesus because of the Holy Spirit's enabling. But yet, someday future, Lord, is glorification from sin, the very presence of sin itself and I can't really imagine what that'll be like but it's a reality and that's what Easter's all about we'll celebrate that next week so Lord uh, leading up to next week may we as believers just prepare our hearts uh, for the words that were shared here and and for what will come on next Sunday and we pray all this in Jesus name amen